you will, turn back in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 14, or whatever copy of God's Word you have, and you have one. God made sure that His Word was not bound. His servants have been bound, His prophets have been bound, His Son has been bound, but God's Word is never bound. That means you always have it at your availability. It's not far from you. It's even near, so much so in your mouth and in your heart, if you would believe it. We are going to be taking up in what would be our 31st evaluation of the children of Israel sojourning through the wilderness. And today we're going to engage in a fairly concise level of theological education so you need to take your antibiotics because you have a little bit of the heebie-jeebies around education. Do that now. Drink some water because we're going to be thinking some things through. The word I want to lift up and bring to your attention is given to us in chapter 14 over in verse 44. But they presumed. But they presumed. Our overarching theme is a rise, move, and go. For those of us at Grace who have been part of this community for forever, 26 years, going on 27, for the last 10 or 15 years, we have submitted to the Lord a request to give us a theme for every year so that we can have a sense of unity around how God speaks to us as a community in terms of his will for us in our life. We do not believe that the people of God live in a vacuum. We don't believe that you live in a kind of silo uh, independent of the reality of this world system and its influences and its impact on you. We don't believe that. We don't believe that you live on an Indian reservation. We don't believe that you live truly in the metaverse. We don't believe that you live in a synthetic world that does not correspond with where uh, God wants us to be. We believe that, as Jesus said in John 17, We are not of the world, but we are certainly in it. The tension between being in the world and not of it is the tension of the difficulty of identity. It's the difficulty of identity. The people of God seem to struggle with who God has claimed that we should be. And if you're honest today, you know that that will be from time to time your struggle as well. Who am I? That will be your struggle. Who am I? Some days you will wake up really struggling to believe that you are what God said you are. Other days you will act so averse to what you know that you are in Christ that you will think that you are not only in the world, but of the world. These tensions are there to help the people of God know that we have not arrived at glory yet. We are on a journey. And our journey in this world as the people of God is exactly like Israel's was through the wilderness. Our world is a wilderness. It's an empty, vast wasteland of spiritual depravity. It is a a society of aimless journeys nowhere but down. Our world is in a very difficult place having rejected God as its foundation and as its source of existence. That being the case, The world also is a real active entity. It is not a passive dimension. It is not a uh, innocuous and uh, non-invasive or uh, non-impactful 
uh, structure. It is always constantly trying to drag you into its clutches. It's always trying to bring you into its web, its net, its agenda. It really wants you to be on its team. You know that. And the children of Israel serve for us as a model of struggling with whether or not they will fully enter into the promises of God or not. They're right there on the brink, aren't they? They should have just entered on in into the reality that God is right and all of his works are done in truth. I want you to get this. They're right up on the border, aren't they? Last week they could have entered in, couldn't they have? They could have entered into a greater fullness of what we know the true and the living God to be. He's the God that does not lie. He doesn't change. He doesn't fail. If he said it, he'll do it. If he declared it, he'll make it good. That's the God of the people of the Bible. Now, think about this, because this is where I'm pressing you down into a challenge today. If you and I would think through in a kind of summation of what's going on with Israel being called out of Egypt to a land that God had prepared for them, what we're dealing with is a God trying to persuade a people. I use that word trying qualitatively, uh, a, a trying to persuade a people that it is better to live with a God consciousness and a relationship with God in this world than not. What he's trying to do with these people is help them understand there are all kinds of people in the world without God. They don't want God and they live without God as if God doesn't exist. Now, this group of people have been blessed that God came to them and that is grace. God came to them in redemptive power and mercy and delivered them. That's grace, too. And then brought them to himself and said, if you walk with me, I'll bring you from nothing to something. I'll make you to inherit the world. I'll put you on high. I'll turn you into a, a kingdom of priests. I'll make you a royal family. If you actually believe in who I am, if you actually identify with me, if you submit to me as your Lord, I will show the world what it means to be a believer in the true and the living God. Am I making some sense? So you got two kinds of people in the world, people that don't believe God and others who really do. And then you got this category in between the two are the folks who kind of but don't quite know. And these are the religious folk for which you and I have to be careful about vacillating between two positions because we can. The world is alluring. Not only is it empty spiritually and a wasteland morally and ethically, and there are innumerable depravities that hallmark our world, but it's also very alluring. The world is attractive. There's a few people in the house that agree with me. It tugs on your emotional coattail. It tugs on your mind. It really does work hard to persuade you that the world is worthy of your attention. That's the world we live in. So it's a war. This is exactly what the scripture tells us. The scripture tells us that's all that's in the world is the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And there is in you and I as human beings a continual unending desire for relevance. And the world is constantly offering that to you. Would you agree? All right. So what we're getting ready to deal with now is the challenge of professing believers in the area of presumption presumption. That's what our title is dealing with. Israel's presumptuous 
sin. And by the time we're at the end of our study today, David is going to teach us something about it in Psalm 19. But what I want you to think about today is how much do I know about the term presumption? How much do I know about the idea of being presumptuous? By the time it's over, you'll hear that word 50 times in this sermon. It's going to drill down into you will never forget it ever again, because presumption is not an English word that we use a whole lot unless we're using it in what we would call the accusative form. The accusative form of the word presumption is when we are saying something to someone else, when we tell them that's presumption. Very seldom will we say of ourselves, you know, I'm being presumptuous. Am I making some sense? Right. So I want to actually deal with the idea of presumption and kind of make sure that it funnels itself into our text because it's explicitly laid out in verse 44, is it not? But they presumed to go up unto the hilltop. Do you see that? But they presumed to go up unto the hilltop. What? This was one of the most bizarre uh, historical pieces of, of narrative that I heard in my early days as a Christian. What would make you and me not do something that God is telling us to do? And then when God tells us not to do it, then we attempt to do it. What would make you go when God says stop? What would make you stop when God says go? What would make you turn right when God says turn left? Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? I'm I'm, I'm getting ready to deal with the mechanisms of our thinking because we all do this. And I want you to understand something about presumption that David wants us to understand because he understood the danger of it. And I want you to understand the danger of presumption. The idea that a person is presumptuous is given to us in our first point. Let me begin to work through it. The definition, definition of presumption. To be presumptuous is to engage in assertions or assumptions, or ideas that we think are true but are not. To be presumptuous is to engage in mental assertions or ideas, or here's a better way to help you if you're not really good with grammar. It's assumptions. Presumptions are a set of assumptions that you and I hold as a precondition for a set of ideas, notion, or views that we have. When you and I are presumptuous, we are believing in a premise, a premise that is actually dangerously false. Look at subpoint A in your outline, a failure to affirm the what? All right, so again, I told you I'm going to do some education before we drill down. I'm always amazed at people who will tell us that our Bible is not filled with psychology. Psychology is everywhere in your Bible. Your Bible carefully explains to you and I the psychological mechanisms, the psychological dynamics, the psychological motivations and drives and aspiration of every human being. It was a psychological warfare that Eve engaged in with the devil when the whole human race was ruined in Adam and Eve. That was a psychological warfare. And what people don't like about the Bible is that the lights are often cut on through Scripture in the area of our mind. The Bible will tell us how we think. That's why folk don't come to churches where the Bible is expounded, because they don't want to be reminded that God sees your thoughts. So when we're talking about the idea of assumptions, we're talking about a set of premises. You know what a premise is? It's what you stand on. I'm standing on a premise right now. 
Did that make some sense? It's a foundation. That foundation can be physical, it can be psychological, it can be geographical. I'm standing on a premise of something. When I have a set of presumptions, a set of ideas that I'm believing are so, it's because I'm, I'm standing on something. I'm standing on a premise. I'm standing on a set of grounded concepts or assertions that I have fabricated and built up as a justification for me to do something or not. Am I making some sense? And when we are practicing presumption, we are often not really challenging our premise because we don't really want to have to go back and evaluate our premise because we might discover that our premise is flawed. Our premise is actually antiquated. Our premise is no longer valid. Like you can have a, an assumption of something that was true yesterday, but not be true today. Am I making some sense? I'm going to drill down because I want you to get it. Because our world lives in the dangerous realm of presumption and false assumptions all the time. I must let you know that. This is the real challenge around truth. Because if truth is a, 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 an event-driven scenario, if truth is an event-driven experience, then what truth is constantly doing is challenging you to examine your premise. It's challenging you to examine your premise, the grounds upon which you believe you know something. That's what truth is always doing, is it not? I mean, let's make an assumption that you believe something and you believe it to be true. But you're presumptuous about it. There's a fundamental emotional insecurity in your presumption. That is to say, you don't want anyone to test you on what you are saying you believe. Because if you really get tested on, you might find that it's faulty. Did that make some sense? Right. But if you are dealing with uh, being valiant for truth, then you will constantly test your premise to make sure it's valid as a legitimate launching pad into what you are going to do. All right. So this is the idea of being presumptuous. The idea of being presumptuous is a failure to affirm the premise. Let me work this through quite a bit more. In the Old Testament, the word presumption is used 14 times. In the New Testament, it's only used once. Now, its cognate words are the words that are very much associated with the idea of, um, of presumption is the idea of rash or proud or bold or arrogant or um, hasty. Uh, or given to, now I'm getting ready to get into the connotations. It's the idea of being lifted up. Bold, rash, assertive, arrogant, lifted up. Are y'all following me right now? Right. So when a person is presumptuous at that level, they are, they are operating out of a level of boldness that's not necessarily adequate to their premise. They're operating out of a level of self-confidence that doesn't necessarily correspond with a legitimate grounds of being. When a person is presumptuous, they will often put on an extra show in the flesh of them being right, though the evidence might be very contrary to it. Did that make some sense? When a person is presumptuous, they are actually uh, playing with their own psychological well-being in the arena of deeply not necessarily knowing it's true, but hoping it is. When we operate out of presumption, we are operating out of a high level of what is called self-will. Can I keep teaching? Right, because the idea of self-will is simply the idea that deep down in our core, we want something. 
And we don't want anything to inhibit it. We will not agree with anyone, even God, when there's something we want. So to be presumptuous is the kind of person that is going to be rash. He's going to be precipitous. He's going to push ahead and break through and go anyway. Literally, the term means to actually exceed the boundaries. To be presumptuous is to have a set of boundaries around you for which you don't care about the boundaries. You don't care about what they mean. You don't care about what they imply. You don't care about who even established the boundaries. You just push through them. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Did that make some sense? All right. So, so the way that this particular verse is translated in other passages is translated heedlessly. They heedlessly went up the hill. Did that make some sense? They heedlessly went up the hill. The idea of moral presumption is being heedless in your crossing parameters or boundaries or barriers that are there to keep you from getting in trouble. But you want to cross them anyway. Right. I'm really dealing with a kind of nuanced definition of what it means to be a sinner. But what I don't want you to get away with today is a generic definition of sin, because we love to stretch sin out and make it so generic that it's harmless. Am I making some sense? See, there's a point in which you can take a knitted sweater and stretch it out so wide it can become a blanket over your king size bed. (laughs) At that point, it's no good as a sweater. And sometimes we can overgeneralize terms where they lose their meaning. And God doesn't want you to do that because words mean something with God. All right. So here, as we're dealing with the idea of presumption, which is in our text, and and, and Moses is going to explain it to us more fully as we get to our fourth point. He's going to explain it more detail. What we're dealing with are people who are heedless in their actions. They are not careful. They are careless. They are conceited. They are arrogant. They are rash. They are bold. They are self-assertive. They are confident in themselves. The Bible calls them foolish. You know, you know what's interesting about all of these adjectives I've described for you? They are absolutely wonderful superlatives to the world. The world loves these uh, these superlatives. The world loves the self-confident person. The world loves a self-assertive person. The world loves the bold person. The world loves the arrogant person. The world loves a person that's a bull in a china cabinet. The world will actually turn that into a laudable character. Am I making some sense? And so does the ignorant church. The ignorant church will call being bold and assertive and demanding your rights and and exceeding boundaries. They'll call that faith. Some of you are listening. Others of you are coming along. They'll call it faith. And if that's not a misrepresentation of faith, I don't know what is. See, you will hear people in certain communities talk about speaking things into existence that don't exist. They're declaring things to be that don't have any reality or basis in anything that God has said. Now, what you're dealing with are people who are not engaging in biblical faith, but they're engaging in arrogant psychological presumption. It's a rhetorical device that makes people think that they really are walking with God and they have a special handle on God's power and blessings. They're not telling the truth. They're lying most of the time, but their job is to hoodwink you. I'm getting ready to go deeper into it. 
because such people are really blind spiritually and they're seeking a following. When you and I are presumptuous, we're blind. This is what David is going to teach us in Psalm 19, verse 13. When you're presumptuous, you're blind. And when you're blind and you walk as a blind person, you are a hazard to yourself and everybody else. Now, God does not call his people to engage in blind faith. The faith that God calls you and I to is on premises that are rooted in promises. And promises are always the anchoring proposition that justifies believing God for something that has not yet occurred. But we are certain that it will because God can't lie, change or fail. If he said it, he'll make it good. If he declared it, he'll bring it to pass. So I am not operating out of a kind of parachute, jump off the cliff and hope everything works out. That's what the devil tried to do with Jesus in his temptation in Matthew 4. And Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So Jesus was never presumptuous. And yet I see Christians everywhere being presumptuous. I'm going to go back to the fundamental definition. God will tell you to do this and you won't. God will tell you don't do this and you do. I observe a lot of Christians that walk in this false presumption. Are you hearing what I just said? I know what I heard it. I'm going to bring it again because it's got to come. Presumption is easy to do when you're not serious about walking with God and keeping your eyes open. It is an analogy of what it means to be a child. Children love not knowing. They like feeling and just acting out of flawed premises that are rooted in their own, I told you, their postmodern fabricated imagination. They love to build constructs and then act on them and whine and cry if you don't agree with them that that's reality. This is why I'm saying that the world I live in, the country I live in, the West is filled with a bunch of children running our nation. That's Isaiah 3, by the way. Children shall be your oppressors and women shall rule over you. Both of those categories are upside down. So men and women in positions of leadership should mature up out of being a child. Children like to play like they know. Play like they understand. Play like they're in a position where they can do something. But see, they're children. We get it with them, don't we? We get it with children. For grown folk, it's blindness. We're going to get there. We're going to get there if if the Lord will grant it. So uh, going back to our text, we'll come here and unpack this a little bit later. I want to bring your attention to three or four things as we move on. Under point number one, presumption is defined as a failure to affirm the premise, whatever that premise is, whatever set of assumptions you're holding by which you believe you are something or can do something or won't do something. And that will set you up for some real dangers. This is what we see over in verse 40 of our text, chapter um, chapter uh, 14, verse 40 in our text says, and they rose up early in the morning and got them up into the top of the mountain, saying, lo, we're here now and we're going up to the place which the Lord hath what? For we have what? Right. Now, that's a hard translation that will get fixed in Deuteronomy chapter uh, one. okay? because it's weird, isn't it? They have just stated that they're getting ready to do something. They're making their way to that place and they use one little noun that's stretched out by the translators when it says we are here. We be here. You see that? Look, we're here. Right. Oh, we've made some advancement in our agenda. And then they 
comfort themselves in a false way by saying we've sinned. We've sinned against the Lord. Meaning what? The Lord told us to go up and we didn't go up. We're going up. Now, this is a huge problem that you need to get because now they are reconscribing what kind of relationship they're going to have with God. I need to keep moving, but I really want you to get it. These are silly people who think they can determine what it means to walk with God, how to obey his commandments, when and when not to obey them. And that when they don't obey them, they can actually circumscribe their own method of forgiveness and release and keep it moving. They're sitting here falsely assuming that they're all right with God because they have confessed with their lips that they sinned. But you and I know far better than that, do we not? This people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so these people have manipulated themselves into thinking because God has allowed us to advance this far. He's certainly going to actually now countermand his own word. He's going to now contradict what he plainly said. He's not going to do what he said. He's going to do what we say. Did that make some sense? Please listen to what's going on. If we drill down into it, God plainly told them you are not going up. You are not getting the land. You're going to be in the wilderness 40 days. And in one fell swoop, guess what they said? No. You with me? They just plainly said, no, no. I have a word in my note and I'm supposed to hold it to my third point, but I'm going to give some of you guys a preview. These people don't know God. They don't know God. When you say no to God, it means you don't know him. The fool has said in his heart, no to God. And this is how a lot of Christians function too. Please get it. And what's really remarkable is what I am calling in subpoint B, emotions are never a substitute for what? Right. No tears, no languor, no. All for sin could not atone. Thou must die and die thine alone. Your your justice and mercy is only given to me because of the sufferings of Christ's work on Calvary. It, It reminds me again of how we can be. We can be emotionally moved and sad about a thing that happened to us. And we hope that crying and whining will merit God's favor. Am I making some sense? Right. Because I kind of get it. I kind of get it. Look over at verse 39. Look at verse 39. And Moses told all these things unto the children of Israel and the people did what? Mourned what? Mourned greatly. So take a snapshot. Use your Kodak film camera and take a snapshot of about a million people whining and crying. And oh, now what are they whining and crying about? The fact that now they got to do 40 years of confinement in the wilderness. Y'all keeping up with me? They just heard a judgment from God through Moses that they did not like. It hurt them to their core. It hurt them to their core for about five minutes. And this is how deceitful sin is in the hearts of human beings who don't understand the great implications of sin, nor the great consequences of it, nor the great remedy for it. Whining and crying won't won't cause God to put away your sin. 
Now, and it's going to be evidenced by their quickly removing away from this morning greatly, this great morning. This is why my, our sub point is emotions are never a substitute for what? If mourning and grieving and greatly bemoaning what they had done wrong was rooted in faith and in love to God, what would have been their response? Okay, Lord, we have to do 40 years in the wilderness. Am I making some sense? Because whatever the Lord says is right. If you're saying we're going to do 40 more years, we're getting ready to do 40 more years. But no, their will was stubbornly bent against the will of God. They gave him tears and not obedience. It's important for you to get this. This is a major optics, a major optic here. Emotions are never a substitute for what? Right. And and parents, don't you know the kids will pull it on you every time? Will they pull it on you? They'll pull it on and, and you know what you do? Just keep crying. I'm going to get a cup of coffee. I'm going to drink my coffee. When I'm done with my coffee, we will finish our conversation because you're going to have to clean up your room anyway. You can cry all you want. You can cry all you want. There will be discipline for your behavior because you won't change if you feel like all you can, need to do is whine and cry and people will let you go. Now, I'm here to tell you, children practice presumption on parents all the time. So emotions are never, never a substitute for obedience because what we see them doing in verse 40 is rising up, rising up. And Moses responds in verse 41 and Moses says, wherefore now do you transgress the commandment of the Lord? It shall not prosper. These people are at war with God, aren't they? Do you guys see that? And it's rooted in what? Presumption. I want y'all to get that. You can stretch that out in your own in terms of application and think about what, what scenarios in my life do I recognize and see where I'm actually being presumptuous against the Lord. And I'm doing what I know I shouldn't do. But I'm doing it anyway. And, and watch God because God will allow you to do it. Am I telling the truth? Will he allow you to do it? Hear me, saints. Will he allow you to do it? Right. And this is what we call free will. Don't ever forget it. Free will is the evidence that you're a sinner. This is what we call freedom of the will. You know, people love to laud free will. Free will is no virtue. If free will is not attached to a righteous spirit that's connected to God in obedience, freedom of the will is nothing but rebellion every time. Talk to me. If free will is not attached to a new nature in Christ, if it's not rooted in an impulse to do what's right, then free will is always treason against his highness. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Do I need to teach the doctrine of free will today? See, this is why we hold a position that your will is never truly free. No one has an absolutely free will, not even God. All of our volitions are always attached to our nature. Our nature will always dictate how we act. Do you agree with that? Because God is righteous by nature, his will and volition will always engage in righteous acts. Because you and I are sinners by nature, free of grace, free of an impulse that overrides our natural inclination, we could never ever do what's right. Am I making some sense? 
This is why they, Paul said in what he said in Romans 7, the good I, I would, I am not doing. Why? Because I need an impulse greater than my natural nature to liberate me from my natural nature so my new nature can do what it wants to do. I want to do right, but I need help doing right. So God is letting me know I'm not going to steal his glory in what I do, because what I do, I know I'm only doing by the grace of God. It is God who works in me the will and to do of his good pleasure. Y'all keeping up with me? So here's the thing that David's going to teach us in a minute. David's going to teach us never ask God to let you just be free to do whatever you want to do. Did you hear what I just stated? Right. See, so. Here's another area in which we're presumptuous. We're presumptuous into in, in, in assuming that you and I are basically good people. Is that a presumption? You know how you'll wake up on any given morning and you'll just feel like you're really good. You'll feel like you're just really good. You know, today I'm, I'm rolling with God. I'm, I'm going to do the will of God. and You know, I'm going to worship God. You start off singing hymns and praises, Right. And, 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 you know, an evil thought is far from you. you you're, you're feeling strong in the Lord and in the power of his might today. By one o'clock, you're cussing. No, see, only real people will get me in a moment. Only real. So now what you did was you did not attribute that disposition and favorable attitude of meditating on God from God. You didn't give God the glory for it. And no flesh will glory in God's sight. Even the believer, the believer will not get away with not letting the world know that the source of my goodness is really God himself. Did I make some sense? Right. Right. So it's very important. I'm not going to go any deeper into this free will thing because people are stupid with it. The reality is that there's very little evidence in your life that you're free. You are driven by impulses deep down into the subconscious level. This is what David is going to teach us. You are driven by impulses deep down at the subconscious level. And when you find yourself doing things that are weird and bizarre and wrong, sometimes you don't even know how that thing emerged. It's because you're not free. You're a sinner. Point number two, presumption is rooted in what? Defiant unbelief. So, yeah, when you look at verse 40 and they rose up early in the morning and got them up to the top of the mountain saying, "Lo, we're here now. We're here now. Oh, I don't want I need to keep going. But this is so insightful. God will give you room to sin and you make you make progress in your scheme and plan. They were climbing up the hill, weren't they? They were making progress. They were looking around and they see that the ground didn't open up and swallow them up. You know how it is when you're in rebellion against God. You're looking for the signals of, his disobe- of your disobedience. You know that. And, and the, the lights don't cut on. You get to go through ward one, ward two, ward three, and you're just about free. You really now believe God is on your side. And then the gate comes down on you. As it should, because if God lets you go, you go straight to hell. And so what we're looking at in this text is profound. I need to keep going. But why I say defiant unbelief is because verse 23 through 25 tells us something exactly opposite of what they're doing. Look at verse 23. God said, surely they shall not see the what? Now, now, did anybody just read what I just read? The Lord said, surely. That's a Hebrew idiom, meaning that God swears by himself. You got to be greater than God when God tells you you're not seeing the land. And then you say, we're going up. We're taking the land. 
If that's not treason, I don't know what is. Notice what he says in verse 23. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoke me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has another spirit. What does that mean? Caleb was truly born again. He has another spirit. And, 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 and Joshua was the same way. He had another spirit. Those were the only two that thought God's thoughts after him. The other 10 were unregenerate men that walked in fear and unbelief. Am I making some sense? Watch this now. Watch how this works out. So he says over in verse um, verse 20, uh, 24, but my servant Caleb, because he has another spirit with him and has followed me, what? Oh, that that might be the testimony of a believer. When we die, put it on my tombstone. He was a sheep of Christ. Christ was his shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Might it be said, and he followed him fully. See it? And he followed him fully. Him will I bring into the land wherein he went and his seed shall possess it. Did God bring to pass for Caleb that, that truth? Now look at verse 25. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwelt in the what? Tomorrow turn you and get ye into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Now, do you see what just happened here? God says, you're not going in. Caleb and Joshua will. Oh, by the way, y'all went into the land doing surveillance and you made all kind of noise coming out. Now the Amalekites and the Amorites have seen you and they're strategically positioning themselves to go to war against you. And now you think to actually go up the hill when they're all ready to come down the hill. See, I told you how deceptive our presumptions can be. Now, if you guys have been keeping up with me in our series in the book of Judges and out of the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, I told you the Megiddo concept, Armageddon, the Megiddo concept is always a war where the enemy goes up and God comes down. Didn't I teach you that? That came out of Judges chapter 5 with Deborah and, 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 uh, and, and Barak, right? That God had taken Barak to the top of Megiddo so that he could come down on the Midianites as they tried to go up the hill. Going up against your enemy is hazardous. Am I making some sense? And the people of God are always depicted when they're right with God coming from the top down. Because every believer is positioned with Christ in heavenly places. Our warfare is spiritual. It's not carnal. We don't fight in the valley. We fight from the mountaintop. It's the mountaintop of accomplished redemption and power in Jesus Christ. You need to know that. We dwell in heavenly places. We sit on high with princes. We have a bird's eye view of the landscape. And when war engages our battle, is spiritual. It is not carnal. It is mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds because we come down on our enemies. We don't go up. We come down. We've already gone up in the person of Christ by his death, burial, and resurrection. Because I live, you shall live also. Am I making some sense? When the believer understands his spiritual warfare, he's not fighting an uphill battle. The only reason we're dealing with uphill now is because we're moving into the promised land, are we not? 
So they were told to go back and go to the wilderness and they are openly defying God, heedlessly moving in a position where they are about to be destroyed. Y'all keeping up with me? Yeah, this is what we call arrogant, blind, heedless presumption. You got to be deluded, don't you? To have been told explicitly by God, don't do that. And here I'm telling you, I swear by my name, don't do it. And then you, you begin to set up strategies and mechanisms to do what you want to do. How arrogant must we be? But nobody in this room ever does that. I know that. Nobody in this room. Nobody in this room. So this, this is not for you. Even though Paul said these things were written as an example to us. This is not for you. You guys are wasting your, totally wasting your time. But you can give this message to somebody else when you get home. Take the CD and give it to somebody you know it is more fit for. Because we're not presumptuous. And yet I state as I move on, my nation as a whole is just as presumptuous as as national Israel. I live in a country that has had God's laws, his word, his truth, his gospel. And we have for decades upon decades rebelled against that gospel. And we are a group of heedless, careless, arrogant, pompous, bold, uh, self-assertive, willful human beings, even in the name of Jesus. That's where I live. The society I live in, they have cast God's word behind their back and they're doing whatever they want to do. And they even dare God to stop them. Am I making some sense? Yeah, Israel and America are one. Presumption is rooted in defiant unbelief. And what I mean by that is because God has explicitly spoken. Look again at verse 25. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwelt in the valley. Tomorrow turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And they said no. That's why we're way over at verse 40 through 45, which is what I want to work through now. So there are three sub points under point number two I want to share with you, expose you to Bible truth. This is going to be another doctrinal truth emerging from our system of theology that we happen to believe is biblical. In my world, mankind is more pure in their own eyes than God. You don't believe that. I know you don't believe that because it's put in such harsh terms, but let me see if I can help you. We live in a world and particularly our country that confidently says we're not governed by God's word. That's the I remember recently in a presentation we sent out about six months ago where an individual was in the court uh, uh, of of the um, Senate and uh, they were they were uh, quoting Bible verses. And one of the senators said, hey, we do not believe that book in this place. We do not believe that book in this place. So for our government, the word of God has been cast behind their back. Am I making some sense? Right. So now ignorant, presumptuous people think that that's not a problem. Because if you don't believe that God exists, throw the Bible out. Am I making some sense? And so this is where we are in our in our present culture. And what that indicates for me are three progressive damning manifestations. First, when a man or woman does not believe God, it means that their heart leaves God. We have departed from our God. We have departed. Humanity has departed from God. God is not in all of our thoughts. He's not the supreme foundation for the way we frame things, understand things, and determine whether or not what we do is right or wrong. Am I making some sense? Most people don't wake up saying, Lord, is this right or wrong? So what Jeremiah tells us as a doctrinal truth that most of our churches have abandoned today, this is called the doctrine of absolute, complete, pervasive, total depravity. Mankind by nature is absolutely, totally depraved. 
All the evidence is in, he is. He is a desperate liar. He's a corrupt human being. Mankind is irreparably damaged by the fall. That's humanity. It's a doctrine that goes way, way back, okay? Am I making sense? That means he's hopelessly ruined without help from God. For us, salvation means God helps you. You don't help God. So the nature of sin for you and I is that we are desperate sinners. That's Jeremiah 17, 5 and 6. Listen to it. Learn it well. The heart. And this is the helm of the heart. It's the helm of the intellect. It's the helm of the volition. It's the helm of your emotions. This is not your physical uh, cardiovascular system. It is the inner man, the inner essence. In the Hebrew, it's called the mind. It's the inner soul. It's the inner essence. It's your rationale. It's your reasoning. It's your thinking capacity in conjunction with your emotional makeup and your volitional drive. Did that make some sense? I teach this as, as a trichotomy. To have an inner man is to have an intellect, is to have an emotional mechanism, system of emotions, and a volitional principle that drives you to act. You and I only act after we have been emoted. That's what emotions are about, to be moved. You are emotionally moved, then you act. But your emotions are driven by how you what? Think. Did y'all get that? You and I never act apart from our emotions. You may not detect them, but you do. You can't act apart from your emotion. This is why a lot of people who have a dead faith, I'm going to teach now. This is why a lot of people who have a dead faith don't ever do what God tells them to do. Because there's a gap between their intellectual faith and their volitional capacity to do it. And it's at the level of their emotional commitment. Did that come home? If the mind is not engaged at the wheel through the, through the emotional mechanism, you won't do because you won't be persuaded. All right, I'm going to teach you a little bit more on that so you can get it. You and I are either motivated or we are demotivated to do a thing. Israel now is operating out of a motivation to rebel against God, are they not? Is that true? Israel was demotivated to obey God when the 10 came back with the bad report. Is that true? All right, good. I think I got you for a little while. Think it through with me. You're in danger when you come to this place because you have to think. When you wake up in the morning, ask yourself, what am I motivated by? When you wake up in the morning, ask yourself, what is it that is demotivating me? I've asked this question several times over this last year to Christians. How can you be demotivated from what God is telling you to do? And if you are demotivated from what God is telling you to do, shouldn't you find out what those things are that are driving that demotivation? If God is telling you to draw near to him, but you're not, what's demotivating you? If God is telling you to study his word, but you don't, what's demotivating you? If God is calling you to pray, but you don't, what's demotivating you? If God is calling you to worship him, but you don't, what is demotivating you? Did that make some sense? See, 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 I'm constantly trying to understand God's word. And what his word tells me is that some men and women have a vital living faith and others have a dead faith. That's what the word of God is warning us about. And so a dead faith doesn't act on the promises of God. Only a living faith does. But that living faith is driven by a cultivation process that motivates you. 
Like what motivates you to come into the house of the Lord to worship him, give him praise, exalt his name and hear the word of truth? What motivates you to do? Now I can give you 50 Bible verses that will tell you what motivates you. I'm simply asking in a very Socratic way why you do what you do or why you don't. Because at the end of the day, your doing and not doing, you will have to give an account for. That's what David's about to teach us. Can I help you with that? Right, because for a lot of people, we are so self-deceived that life is a mystery to us, isn't it? Come on, be honest. Girl, I don't know why I do what I do. Man, I don't know. I must be crazy, man. I just did it. No, you didn't. You did it, but there were a set of mechanisms that drove the outcome of you doing it or not. You were just blind to them. And in many cases, if you're presumptuous, you were willfully blind to them. Did that make some sense? Right. And listen, willful blindness is no excuse. That's what David is getting ready to teach us. I can't wait to get there. Listen to what uh, the scripture says in Jeremiah 17, 5 and 6. Thus said the Lord God, cursed be the man that trusted in what? I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. See, this is what. So in our churches, we don't want to take the eternal truth and anchor it to our life. Because if you take that proposition and anchor it to our life, we'll find that Americans trust much more in man than they do in God. And so do Christians. Sub point A is clear, isn't it? That first clause is clear. As soon as man tells you what to do, you you jump. Am I making some sense? Let me keep going because guess what God said? Cursed be the man. There's a curse that comes on humanity when humanity does what humanity says over what God says. That's why our society is cursed right now. Am I making sense? Look at the next line. Watch this. Cursed is man that trusted in man and that makes flesh his what? Now, that's a double idiom in the Hebrew, and it simply means you rely upon fleshly man to be your defense. You are depending on them saving you. The arm is a metaphor for power and might, is it not? Who hath believed our report, Isaiah 53, 1? To whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Jesus is the arm of the Lord, is he not? He's the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes. Is he not? Is the word of God not power? Is the Holy Ghost not power? So the believer has a power and it's never in man's wisdom. It's never in men's doctrines. It's always in God. Now notice this person. The reason why they're trusting man and the reason why they're leaning on the flesh is because their heart has departed from God. Y'all listening to me? Guess who's talking? Jeremiah. To whom is Jeremiah talking to? Religious folk. Christians. Did y'all get that? He's talking to Christians. Verse six. Verse six. Notice what it says. And he shall be like the heath in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the what? In the what? In the what? Where's Israel headed back to? Because they have not trusted God. Do y'all see the text? God says, turn around, go back to the wilderness. You will not be a tree planted by the rivers of water whose roots go deep, whose streams are full, whose branches launch out, whose leaves never wither, whose fruit is seasonal and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Israel was not going to be that because they departed from God. 
Do y'all see that? That's the text. It's very clear for you and I to see the correlation. So uh, look at subpoint B. The heart leaves God and then the heart does not what? Right. This is Hebrews chapter 312. The book of Hebrews is written to these same people only in the days of Jesus. Listen to what the Hebrew writer says. Now, mind you, I'm telling you, we're talking to Christian folk here. Here it is. Take heed, brethren. Do y'all see that? Take heed, brethren. Do you see that? You know what he's saying? Don't be what? Presumptuous. Hurry up. Y'all should be there now because presumption is being heedless. Don't be heedless, brethren. Don't be presumptuous. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of what? There it is. In departing from the living God. See, when men and women depart from the living God, it's because their hearts are evil. This is why I was telling you about be careful about what's demotivating you or what's motivating you. Because if there's something motivating you that's not like God, it's what's demotivating you towards God. If there's something motivating you this way and God's that way, that which is motivating you is not God. So here's what he says. It's so very clear. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. I'll make it good in a little bit. Sub point B, or C rather, the heart pursues its own what? When the heart leaves God, it means the heart is not trusting God. And therefore, that vacuum has to be filled up with its own what? Lust. This is James 1.13. Listen to it again. James 1.13. Then we're going to go to chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. I want you to see it because I'm giving you a New Testament explanation of what's happening in the Old Testament. Is it corresponding? I'm giving you a new. So the New Testament is always a further explanation of human behavior rooted out of Old Testament examples. The New Testament is never written ad hoc in a vacuum. It's always an expansion on human behavior from Old Testament examples. That's why your New Testament is filtered with Old Testament references. I've told you, you can't have a New Testament without the Old Testament. Am I making sense? There's no way you couldn't understand at all any genuine, authentic propositions in the New Testament that didn't have their anchoring in what we call the pointer passages of the Old Testament. The New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament. Here it is. Let no man say when he is tempted of God, I am tempted. When he's tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither does he tempt any man. He doesn't put a man in a position to fall. God never puts you in a position to fall. Don't ever blame God when you fall. Here it is, verse 14. Look at verse 14. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. There you go. It's called free will. That's the freedom of your will. Do you guys see that? Hurry up and learn it. It's the freedom of your will. I told you this before. Freedom doesn't operate in a vacuum. It's always operating on sets of principles that drive it in one direction or another. Does that make sense? God's not even free. God can't lie. That means he's not free. God can't change. That means he's not free. God can't fail. I can give you a thousand things God can't do because God is not free. Am I making some sense? Yeah. Now, this is old fundamental logic. These are fundamentals in logic, the law of non-contradiction. And you need to know them because you live in a culture today where you're being lied to and hoodwinked because you don't think well. 
And, and, and we have bought for over 150 years the notion that man is basically good and that man is free. He is neither basically good nor is he free. He's a slave of sin and bent on rebellion. If he were good, God wouldn't need to send Jesus to save us. If he were free, we wouldn't need the power of God to deliver us. Am I making sense? Right. So every man is drawn away by his own lust. When you see him run towards that lust, understand he said no to God. There's a powerful passage in Proverbs that lays that out. Powerful passage in Proverbs. When you see a man who has committed violence unto blood, he's headed to the pit. Leave him alone. I'll make that good here in a moment redemptively. So we see that the heart leaves God, that the heart does not trust God, and therefore the heart pursues its own lust. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why we are called by our founding fathers not to just believe our government. The founding father said you cannot trust your government. You have to test your government. You cannot trust your leaders. You have to test your leaders. You cannot just do what they say. You have to hold them accountable to what they say they will do. And they're expecting you to let them do whatever they want to do because they believe you want to do whatever you want to do. They crazy and they're hoping you're crazy too. Five, 10, 15, I got 20 minutes. My government is crazy, certifiably insane. The vast majority of them are socio-psychopathic narcissists. That's my government. I have spent a long time evaluating them, and I'm coming to discover they're getting nuttier and nuttier every time they run for office. Now, we can laugh about it, but the problem is, is that I feel quite a bit responsible and obligated for them steering the ship over the cliff because we have a system by which we can vote them in and vote them out and when we don't care about voting them in or voting them out when the ship goes over the cliff we can holler and scream all we want to but the whole thing going over the cliff and the bible tells me if the rulers be wicked it means the people are also wicked So that's an indictment on me to some degree that I would tolerate wicked men and not say something about it. Am I making sense? Because the word of God tells me that the righteous wisely contends with the wicked. We wisely let them know they're in rebellion against God. This is what I loved about what John MacArthur did last year when he made it clear to Navin Goosom his rebellion against God. I'm so glad. It used to be that the church was prophetic many years ago. I told you that. And governments tremble at the prophetic word. They trembled at the prophetic word. John Knox, Queen of England. There's one man I tremble at, it's John Knox. Because he was bold enough to say, you guys are living wickedly before God. And God is not mocked. We don't hear it at all today. We're way too given to frivolity and entertainment in our churches. Way too given to frivolity. And you're told that you're more godly when you're permissive and frivolous and entertaining. That's the kind of pastor you want, a frivolous, entertaining pastor that won't tell you you're walking presumptuously. Am I making some sense? 
Right. This is where we are today. You and I, every time we come to church, you should pray for a paradigm shift. Every time you come to church, you should pray for an internal, spiritual, psychological paradigm shift in your thinking to alter you from your presumptions because unless our framing is broken, we come in deceived and go out deceived. If your framing isn't broken by the word of God, this is why Jesus says, I am a light come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. And that's why they killed him because he was breaking frames everywhere he went. This is why people get saved. People get saved when you hear good teaching and preaching. People don't get saved when you hear entertainment. People get saved when their frames are broken by humble, bold truth claims. The veil is pulled back and they see that they're actually in a conversation with God. And so this is where we are headed to our third point. Presumption is the manufacturing of a false what? Well, obviously, I don't have to build this out. You know, they were deluded, weren't they? They were utterly deluded, but let's walk through our three points because I want to deal with Psalm 19 briefly. What I mean by that is in verses 41 through 43, it becomes obvious. Look at verse uh, 42. Moses said, do not go up for the Lord is not among you that you be not smitten before your enemies. Now, see, they were not estimating that kind of resistance, were they? They probably didn't even think it through. Moses explicitly told them, do not go up. Didn't he say that? He also says, the Lord is not among you. He says, you will be smitten by your enemies. Why did they take one step further? It's because in their presumption, their premise was flawed. They were operating out of a defiant unbelief and they were manufacturing a false reality. Did that make some sense? Right. So even while Moses is talking, they're still fabricating victory. They're fabricating a win. You wouldn't go further if you actually believe what Moses said. Three sub points and then we'll move on to our final point. Lying prophets do this continually. So I want to I want to introduce you to a Bible that tells you beware of false prophets. I know you never read that in your life in your Bible before. Beware of false prophets. That's what Jesus said when the disciples were stuck on the temple. Jesus said, forget all that. That temple, all that's coming down. They, they never heard those words before in their life. The temple coming down, the temple is the, the, the symbol and identity of who we are. Jesus said, that whole stuff is coming down. It's going to be down. It's going to stay down for over 2,000 years. Stop even looking at that temple. Men are deceived when they look at temples. Christ is the temple. Am I making sense? They, they stuck on the temple. It's the pride of their Judaism and their, their religiosity and, and false interpretation of Isaiah 2, 2. The whole earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Everybody shall come to Zion. Men shall seek the law of God at his temple. Well, the law of God is to be sought in its fulfillment in the person of Christ in the gospel. Christ is the temple of the living God. And if he be lifted up, he'll draw all men unto him in the preaching of Christ. All nations come to God. Am I making some sense? They don't come to physical temples. Men can knock physical temples down. Men can invade physical temples. Devils occupy physical temples all the time. Am I making some sense? 
So it's very important for you and I to wake up. Lying prophets do this all the time. Y'all don't know this. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22. God told Israel, when you go into the land, you're going to be running across false prophets and then you're going to have them in your own family. And what they're going to do is they're going to tell you, thus saith the Lord. Right. They're going to say, thus saith the Lord, because they're going to believe you so religious that anytime you hear Jesus name, you think the person telling the truth. That's that's what you got with Christians. He said, Jesus. He said, Jesus. Now, when a prophet speaks in the name of Jesus, if the thing follow not nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. But that prophet has done what? Spoken presumptuously on a flawed premise. Don't we have these preachers every day in our world? You shall not be afraid of him. The other passage deals with that says, take him out and stone him. Y'all didn't know that. Don't be afraid of him. Kill him. You get rid of him because he's lying in the name of the Lord. You, there's no higher authority that you can breach than when you take the name of the Lord in vain. I love this. This is Jeremiah account. Some of you guys know it. Some of you don't. This is Jeremiah chapter 28. We're going to look at Jeremiah 28. This is the occasion where Jeremiah gave some bad news like I have to do from time to time. Jeremiah gave some bad news to Israel. Guess what he said? Remember those 70 years of captivity that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 28? In a few years, y'all going into captivity to Babylon. Israel did not like that. Every time Jeremiah preached, he said, I'm starting with the number 70. And it grieved people every day. Jeremiah, what you got to say? 70 years. Jeremiah, what else do you have to say? 70 years. Jeremiah, do you have anything else to say? 70 years of captivity because God can't lie, change, or fail. When you violate God's law, the covenant is going to be breached and you're going to know it. 70 years. And this is what Jeremiah had said when uh, uh, Hananiah came along. You guys know Hananiah. He came along another false prophet. Jeremiah says, now the prophet, which prophesies what? When the word of that prophet shall come to pass, then you shall know that prophet, uh, shall the prophet be known that the Lord has what? Truly sent him. Verse 10. Verse 10. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke off of the prophet Jeremiah's neck and did what? Now Jeremiah had a wooden yoke on his neck because he he needed the people's attention. That would be like a big microphone today. And uh, he, he, he came in that same day, same, Jeremiah, what you preaching with that big old yoke? 70 years captivity. Okay. So he's the prophet preaching evil. Hananiah's on the other end preaching good. And then Hananiah comes and takes the yoke off of Jeremiah's neck and breaks it. What an optic. Everybody went to Hananiah and was clapping. Thank you, Hananiah. Thank you, Hananiah. Because Hananiah said, no, you're not going into captivity for captivity for 70 years. You're only going to be there for two years. Sound familiar? It'll come home in a moment. Then Hananiah, then Hananiah the prophet spake in the presence of all the people. Thus saith the Lord, even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all nations within the space of two years. Boy, they shouted, they jumped, they ran around the church. They got the Holy Ghost, spoke in tongues. Happy as could be, weren't they? Hananiah has spoken presumptuously against the Lord. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their own means. And my people love to have it so. 
That is the hallmark of the mo most of the churches in America right now. And I'm quoting Jeremiah. I love Jeremiah. My, I cut my teeth on Jeremiah. I can quote a thousand verses from Jeremiah. That's why they hated him, because he exposed them. Like good people are into exposing the crooks. And a wicked society does not like good men and women exposing crooks. Wicked people want to kill you. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. We're back at Jeremiah 28. I'm, I'm almost done, sweetheart. Jeremiah 28, 15. This is, do y'all know what happened to Hananiah? Then said the prophet Jeremiah unto Hananiah, the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord hath not sent you, but you are making the people to do what? Trust a lie. See it? He was presumptuous and they bought it. This is what the Spirit of God knew. He examined all of the hearts of the people that had heard Hananiah and their hearts leaned deeply into what Hananiah was saying. It rested in Hananiah. Oh, finally someone telling us what we want to hear. Thank you, Lord. It was a delusion fabricated from his mind and they agreed with it. God told Jeremiah to tell Hananiah, you're going to die. And Hananiah died a few days later. Do you understand what's going on here? The Bible's clear. Lying prophets do this continually. The Psalms warns us about this. I want you to get it. Psalm 50, verse 16 through 23. This is clearly the context in which I'm dealing with. This is the psalmist speaking to the people of Israel about their behavior as a society. Listen to it. But unto the wicked, God says, what have you to do to declare my statutes? Now, good. Catch that now. He's talking to the what? The wicked. But what are the wicked doing? Speaking God's words. Why are they wicked? Because they're religious. They're speaking God's word, but they're wicked. Did y'all get that? What have you to do to declare my words? Wicked men and wicked women have no right to speak for God. And so God is calling them on it. What have you to do to take my statutes or that you should take my covenant in your mouth? Do you see it? Look at verse 16, uh, 17. Seeing that you hate instructions and you cast my words behind you. That is the generation of religious people I know today. They love to talk about how much they love Jesus. They have no desire for the word of God to be hid in their heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. People don't want God's word in their heart because that word will work way down into the soul and get inside your head and turn you around and make you right. Right? Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereunto according to thy word? With my whole heart have I sought you, O God. Oh, let me not depart from your precepts. Right, this is, this is the hymn writer letting us know actually how to fight the battle against the carnal nature wanting you to go another way. This is what David is saying. This is what the psalmist says. So rich, verse 18. Here it is, verse 18. When you saw a thief, then you consented with him. Now these are religious folk agreeing with thieves. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and you've been partaker in his adultery. Do you see it? These are so paradoxical, aren't they? Because you would think Christians would recognize a thief and call a thief for what they are. Do we have thieves in our government? See? 
This, do we have adulterers in our government? We have them in our churches too. Yes, this is a serious matter. Let me go on. This is so wild, so wild. Turn with me in your Bible now to Psalm 19. I want to just do one more thing as we deal with our final, final set. No, you know what? Let me, this is what I want to do. Point number four, point number four. Presumption fails to see what's what? Did y'all get that? Presumption fails to see what's missing. Let me see if I can tie this knot. Then I'll touch on Psalm 19 and close as an exhortation. In, in verse 43, uh, Moses warned that the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you. They've already gone and strategically set up, you guys. And you shall fall by the what? Because you have turned away from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord will not be with you. Man, if that's not a warning, why are they still going? David is going to explain this in Psalm 19. He's going to explain why men and women go ahead on in to rebellion when they've been told not to. Okay, and and I want you to see that process because it's going to help you understand how to stop yourself when you're headed off the cliff into rebellion against God. But but if we look here, this is the thing about presumption. Presumption fails to see what's what? What's missing? Let me hurry up and get done with this. These people went up the hill, not realizing they should be coming down the hill. Didn't I teach you that? Victorious people are coming down the hill because they had already taken the top of the hill. They had already gotten there. They were already spying out the lamb from a position of oversight. Now they're back down the hill because of their unbelief. And God told them you need to go to the wilderness. Now they're trying to go back up the hill. Halfway up the hill, they're about to be met with their enemies, are they not? They're never going to make it to the top. Now, here's the reason why they're not going to make it to the top. Sub point A, scripture does not support them. Scripture does not support them. Did y'all get that? See, by strength shall no man prevail. That's 1 Samuel chapter 2. If they made it to the top, they would be making it in their own strength. Is that right? Please listen to me. You got all kind of Christians who do all kind of things who do not have the warrant of the word of God to do it. So the first thing you need to know when a person is operating out of presumption, they're failing to realize they're going contrary to God's word. Didn't God just give his word on this matter to the law and to the testimony? If they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. When you meet Christians talking about, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that in the name of the Lord. And you know it's contrary to the word of God. Know that they're being presumptuous. Am I making some sense? You're never going to override God's word. I'm sorry. You're never going to override God's word. If you do, God becomes a liar and a failure. Please understand. So they don't have God's word on their side. Secondly, godly leadership is not with them. Did y'all get that? Godly leadership is not with them. What the text tells us over in verse 44, you need to see it. Uh, But they presume to go up to the hill. Nevertheless, here it is. The ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. Can I teach you? You never go to war without leadership. You never go to war without affirmation of God's word. And you never go to war without King Jesus represented in the Ark of the Covenant, born up by the priest as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
God did not go with them. Christ did not go with them. Victory did not go with them. Atonement did not go with them. The promise of victory did not go with them. Moses didn't go. Aaron didn't go. And they were totally blinded as to what was missing. Do you see how deceived people can be? I'm thinking Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16 and 17 now. Jeremiah said, your words were found and I did eat them and they were the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Haven't I quoted that a thousand times to you guys? For believers, we love God's word because it's a light to our path, a lamp unto our feet. The word of the Lord is reproof instructions. The the word of the Lord can correct us. It can protect us. It can build us up, give us an inheritance among them that are sanctified. The word of the Lord will enlighten the eyes. So what David is saying in Psalm 119, which I'm trying to get there. But the beauty of God's word is if you open it up, it'll tell you to stop before you even know you're going the wrong way. Woo, Lord, I'm so glad I read that passage. Man, I I did not know I had strategized and schemed a wicked thing for myself. And God's word will cut that light on and show you, hey, hey, no, 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 no. So thy words are found. I did eat them. They were the joy and rejoicing of my heart for I am called by thy name. See, this is what we mean by identity. I know who I am. I'm called by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a child of the living God. I believe and trust Christ as my savior. He's my Lord and his word is true. And so the text goes on to say verse 17. I love this. Here it is. Jeremiah says, and I never sat in the assembly of mockers. You know what that means? That means Jeremiah never woke up under a postmodern delusion of a fantasy walking in a presumption. When you rebel against God, you will wake up one day only in a group of wicked people that don't love God. And it happened incrementally. Your heart got hard against God. Psalm 19, verse 13. Your heart got hard against God. Y'all got five minutes for me? See, that was only four people who said that. They always do. The same old four people said, go ahead on, Pastor. Go ahead on, Pastor. You can, Pastor, you can preach all day, Pastor. Only four people doing that. <laughs> go ahead on, Pastor. I ain't got nothing to do. I worked all week. I made extra money yesterday. I can sit here for three hours. This passage actually re- requires full development. But you've heard it quoted before, and I'm just going to walk it through and say some things that will give you some insights. This is Psalm 19. I actually want to start back at verse 11. This is David exalting God's word. And he closes out that that, uh, uh, exaltation of God's word by saying, moreover, by them is your servant what? Were we warned today? Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And in keeping of them, there is what? So when men and women observe God's word, when they retain God's word, when they devote themselves to God's word, when they uh, have allegiance to God's word, then God's word will keep them as they keep God's word. That's what he's saying. There's great reward. There's great reward. Now, let me walk through this. Verse 12. Watch this. Watch this. Let's walk through this. Here it is. Who can understand his errors? That's the first question David raises. It's Socratic by nature. Let me help you. Who can understand his errors? It's the idea of being blind to the reason you do the wrong thing. 
I want you to frame that. I'm not going to unpack it now. I just want you to frame it. I'm already behind the language. I understand what it means. Who can understand? Because when you don't have understanding, you are psychologically blind. Am I making some sense? So we do understand at the spiritual level, when we are not mature, we are spiritually blind, aren't we? This is why when you tell people that they're dead in trespasses and sins as an unsaved people, and they fight against you, they argue with you because they're ignorant of that mystery. They're ignorant that they're dead spiritually. Until God makes you born again, you don't even know you need to be born again. Okay? And so, and, and it's a work that God has to do. You can't do it. And, and secondly, while you are spiritually blind, you have no sense of understanding the mechanism that drives you down the pathway of error. Okay? Error is behavior and conduct that does not correspond with God's will. Are y'all keeping up with me? So when it says, who can understand his errors? It's saying, who can understand our tendencies to transgress God's law perpetually? Because that's what error is, okay? What David is getting ready to do is make a distinction psychologically and theologically from inadvertent transgression and presumption. What he's opening up, letting you and I know, is we're, we're sinners. And you and I can't possibly know why the impulses of our sinful nature uh, emerge with all kind of wild and crazy thoughts and actions and pathways. But there are enough of you in the house that are honest enough to know you can get crazy with your thoughts. Like absolutely buck wild, insane, irrational, Martian-like, artificial intelligence-like crazy with the way you think. Raise your hand if I'm telling the truth. You can get like crazy with the way you think. And you get so bad, you want to blame it on somebody else. You want to blame it on the devil. The devil got me thinking crazy. No, he don't. You're thinking crazy because deep down inside, you are broken at the level of not knowing that you need God. Okay, so here's what David says. Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Now, we don't quite understand what that means, but I'm going to preach to you right here. When David says, cleanse me from secret faults, he's not merely saying, Lord, deliver me from those sins that I cannot detect and see. We talk about that all the time. Is that true? Deliver me from those sins that I cannot detect and see. He's not merely saying that. What he is saying is, Lord, I need you to clear me, not cleanse me, clear me. I'm teaching, write it, write it. I need you to clear me. Not just cleanse me, I need you to clear me. I need you to justify me. I need you to stand in the gap for me with an atonement that would justify me from my faults. I need a savior whose death merits a righteousness that clears me from the guilt of my nature. Did y'all get that? Cleanse, clear, justify, free me from my guilt of nature. Not just the things I know that I do, but who I am by nature. By nature, I am an erring man and woman. What I need more than an external washing, I need a court clearing of the condemnation that's rooted in my nature because I'm a hell-bound sinner 
And even my thoughts are folly before God. My thoughts are folly before God. God will bring every man into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. I need more than cleansing. I need clearing. I need to be cleared out of the courtroom of God by the merits of Christ's righteousness. I need God to take my sins and lay them on Christ and take Christ's righteousness and give it to me and declare me free, declare me right, declare me just on the grounds of him who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what that text means. That's what that text means. Verse 13, verse 13, keep your servant back from presumptuous sin. Did y'all catch that? Give me a few more minutes. He did not ask to cleanse us from presumptuous sin. He didn't ask to wash us from it. He didn't even ask to forgive us of presumptuous sin. This would take longer than the time I have here. Under Torah, in the Pentateuch, Presumptuous sin was never forgiven. Sins of ignorance, yes. Trespass sins. And it it gives all kinds of grounds upon which we can understand that we bump into and transgress God's laws in many areas that we're not aware of. That's why you have sacrifices in the morning and noon and at night, because you're going to transgress. Did that make some sense? Right. That's your walk with God. That's what I meant. The path of the just is as a what? So every day God's going to cut the lights on and show you where you can do better. Because you're not doing good enough to declare righteousness. So you and I are constantly erring here and there. Presumptuous sin was never forgiven. God wouldn't dare give those hard-hearted rebel sinners the right to go out and arrogant, pompous presumption and kill somebody and think that they could just come and bring a lamb and offer it to the priest and they're free to go. That's Catholicism. Did y'all hear what I just stated? And we, we understand Catholicism's argument of venal sins and, and what, what have you. I understand, we understand those categories. The reality is presumptuous sin is dangerously close to blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. You must know that. I'm going to walk you through it. Three more minutes. See, it's really important that you know that you and I can develop in hardness of heart against God in such a way as the gospel merits nothing for you. There are men and women who will start off very sensible and sensitive to the teachings of God's word. They'll even be emotional. That's the parable of the sower of the seed and the shallow ground hearer. The shallow ground hearer will hear the word of God and for a while rejoice. But then after time, tribulation and temptation and lust of the flesh will drive them from God's word. Am I making sense? See, and so here when it says, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins, he said, Lord, do not let them have dominion over me. Don't let them bring me into captivity. Don't let them take me because if they get me, they're going to drag me to hell. I know what David is saying. Here's what David is saying, and you need to know what David is saying. If presumptuous sin gets you, you won't care at all what God says. If presumptuous sin gets you, 
No matter what God says, you won't care. You're going to do what you want. That's what Israel just did. That's what they just did. That's what they just did. They just said, we're doing what we want to do. Did y'all get that? See, and if you was real, really hungry for the word, we would get the Deuteronomic interpretation of this in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 40 through 46, because Moses is at the end of his journey now in Deuteronomy. This is the beginning of the 40 years for them, uh, 38 years. Now Moses is at the end and he's recounting what happened. And in Deuteronomy chapter 1, 40 through 46, he gives you a fuller detail of our text. And in the detail there, Moses is clear that they openly defied God. What was vague in Numbers chapter 14 is explicit in Numbers uh, Deuteronomy 1. Are you guys keeping up with me? I'm simply saying this. When David says in Psalm 19 verse 13, keep back your servant. He's saying, Lord, don't even let me go there. Hold me back. Keep me. Right. See, when you talk like that, it means you believe God. Here's what you know. You know that apart from the grace of God, you would keep hell burning all by yourself. Here's what you know. You would be the greatest rebel on the planet if God doesn't keep you. How honest is a man that's saying, Lord, don't even let me come close. Hog tie me. Handcuff me. Bring me in the captivity of your providence. Keep me from that nation. I don't even want to be on the same planet. I do not want to engage in presumption because once presumption takes over, your heart cares nothing for what God says. Did you hear me? You got all kind of atheists today talked about how they used to go to church. I had a dear friend, homosexual, named Brandon. How many of you guys remember Brandon? Good. I've been waiting for him to show up. I'm afraid he's dead. Because of his lifestyle. And because of what he knew. Brandon was a seminary student of the Presbyterian faith. But as Presbyterianism has gone by the wayside, along with almost every other evangelical denomination, opening the door up for homosexuality and same-sex marriage and bisexuality and women preachers. This is what's corrupt about all of our churches. Uh, Brandon just, he became my adversary, right? My public adversary, whom I loved. Because I love dealing with people that want to talk about it as long as you're rational. And he, he, he will leave rationality every now and then because, you know, that's what you do when you don't know God. You get irrational. But once this pandemic hit and once... All of this crazy started three or four years ago. He disappeared. But we know the statistics on a deep level about the behavior of homosexuality. They'll lie to you. He lied to me a lot. He lied to me a lot. And I knew he was lying because all men are liars. I didn't mind him lying. I'm a liar, too. It takes one to know one. I'm just a saved liar. That'll help. That'll help some of you in a second. Right. So as a saved liar, we tell the truth and we admit that we're liars by nature. Now, if you tell me that you don't lie, you're telling me you're not sinning. And the Bible tells me he that saith he has no sin is himself a liar. And the truth is not in him. He that will confess his sins. The Lord is just and faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Am I telling the truth? Stay with me for a moment. 
And I'm afraid Brandon may have gone by the way. I've been calling, Brandon, come. Call me, I want to talk. I want to know what you've learned because I know you bought the lie. But between then and now, tens of millions of people have died because of the lie. I'm looking at it today. I feel bad that my friend is not here. I don't want to live with all safe people. That'll come home in a minute. I know that sounds wild. I know I don't want to live with all safe people. You guys are a mess. I want to live with some unsaved folks too. Yes, I do. I, I like the way Jesus did ministry. He ate and drank with publicans and sinners and tax collectors. Yeah, I want to be around people that one day that they don't see and then the next day they see. I want to be around people that are blind. I was once blind, now I see. I want to be around people that are trapped and lying to themselves and then one day the Holy Ghost breaks their bands and they tell the truth in Jesus' name. That's, the kind of, that's what God has called us to be, men and women among lost sinners. You want to develop those kind of relationships because your, your, your salt is worth nothing if it doesn't have the capacity to cause them to salivate after redemption and salvation. Am I making some sense? We got a church full of dead folks, spiritually dead folks. When you're afraid to deal with sinners, come not near me, I'm holier than thou. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? You're nothing different than a sinner but the grace of the living God. That's all y'all. And in fact, we're more culpable than they are. Am I making some sense? I'm way overdue. All right, that's where I'm going to stop. Amen.